Welcome to A Better Story Podcast. Got an old, weird story for you today. I was asked recently to preach a sermon for a friend's church on Judas, the character of Judas who betrays Jesus. So we're going to look at Judas, one of the most hated figures in Christian history, probably right behind Satan, which is not really a ranking that you want. And we're going to see if he has something to offer us, if there is something about even this story that can lead us into better stories. So as I was putting this together for my friend's church, I had this assumption that Judas was probably the most hated guy in Christian history, but I wanted to like double check that at the last minute. So I did a quick just like Google search of Judas, and there is some truly terrible Judas clickbait out there. Just to give you an idea of how hated this guy still is. Articles included, is Judas the worst sinner of all time? Like there's some like ranking out there. Is Judas definitely in hell? Absent in that Google search was Judas cracking the list of like top 10 baby names of 2018, which I guess is pretty understandable. And so I think it's safe to say Judas probably is one of the most hated people in Christian history. But I don't really want to add on any hate to Judas. Not to like write off what he did, and I'll go through the story a little bit here in a second, but there's 2,000 years of people just like crapping on Judas, and I'm not really that interested in that. I don't think that really helps us, which I'll tell you about in a little bit here. So let me give you a rundown of what the scriptures say about Judas, just so you can get a picture of how hated he was then and even how hated he is now. So Judas appears in all four gospel texts, all four Jesus stories that are included in the Christian scriptures. And in every single one, when he's introduced, each writer is willing to spoil the narrative and the plot line to tell you about Judas. So they all introduce him as Judas, the dude who would betray Jesus, my paraphrase. So if you're reading the story for the first time, the whole story is spoiled just so that you know that Judas sucks. Luke goes on a little bit later to say that he thinks Judas was possessed by Satan, or Satan entered Judas, which is a pretty terrible thing to say. John talks about how Judas was this, like, greedy, terrible person who tried to keep the money for Jesus so he could skim off the top of it. Acts goes into this sort of, like, gory detail of how Judas fell off of a cliff and had his guts burst all over the place. And then most of the gospel texts give the sort of basic story that Judas is known for. Betraying Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew goes on to include the scene where Judas feels really terrible afterwards and goes back to the religious authorities who gave him that money and said, I'm wrong. Here's your money back. Help me out here. They end up saying, nope, this is on you, buddy. This is your fault. And then tragically, Judas goes and hangs himself. Matthew is so cold to Judas that even before that, he says it would have been better if Judas would have never been born, which is a really, really terrible thing to say about someone. It didn't take that long for Christian history to pick up. Right where the scriptures left off, there was a second century bishop named Papias who wrote this like weird Quentin Tarantino-esque like gory description of how Judas died. Like it was this weird fan fiction where he goes body part by body part about how painful it was for Judas to die and how long it took. Like really sick and twisted stuff. So the scriptures in Christian history, and I think even to some extent, Today, when we talk about Judas, we treat him as a one-dimensional character, as this pure evil villain who can't be redeemed. But I want us to look at him and his story with a little bit of nuance and see how maybe it can lead us into better ways of living in the midst of the tragedy of his story. And what I think we'll find is that his story and even his death was a collective failure. 
that there were a number of systems and people and groups that let him down, even in the midst of what he did, which was terrible. His loss of hope was a collective failure. I think his story is begging us to create a world where that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. So let's look at him with a little bit of nuance and see who he was. As you saw before, every single time that Judas is mentioned in the scriptures, it's negative, neutral at best. And so it's hard to see him with any nuance, but we get some context clues. So I want to paint you a little bit of picture of who I think Judas probably actually was. The biggest context clue we get is related to that 30 pieces of silver. There's sort of this illusion there that the authors are probably trying to flesh out a little bit. 30 pieces of silver is not a random number. It's mentioned throughout scripture a few different times, and the main one is in the Hebrew scriptures in this obscure passage in Zechariah 11. And this passage is a metaphor. It's this image that Zechariah just kind of comes out and says what he's talking about. It's an image of a shepherd. And the shepherd is watching over this flock of sheep. Zechariah says the shepherd is this sort of like figurative leader of Israel, maybe even himself. The sheep is Israel. It's people he's caring for, watching over, nurturing. And somewhere along the way, the shepherd gets disillusioned. He looks around and he's like, these sheep are going to get slaughtered no matter what I do. I can't protect them. Not because they've done anything wrong, but because the outside forces, the empires around them, are so strong that it doesn't matter what the shepherd does. And so in the face of this outside oppressive force of empire, the shepherd goes and cashes in. He says, I can't do this. I give up. These sheep are on their own. And he gets 30 pieces of silver. So the image is 30 pieces of silver was sort of this payment for cashing in in the face of empire. The illusion being that Judas did the same, that he cashed in in the face of empire, which reminds us of something. Judas was under empire. Judas, as much as we never say it, was himself a victim of empire. Talked about it a ton of times before, but Israel was passed around from empire to empire, and by the time Jesus was around, they were suffering under the heavy hand of Rome, a hand that would kill you in an instant if you thought you were stepping out of line. And so I think it's a pretty safe assumption to say that Judas and probably most of the people who followed Jesus were looking for some sort of liberation from empire. They saw what Jesus was doing and they thought, this guy can free us from the shackles of Rome. Finally, we'll be free and independent. And what this allusion to the metaphor in Zechariah is telling us is that over time, Judas probably grew disillusioned with the way that this was going. That after three years of following Jesus around, he wasn't actually seeing any tangible change. Jesus wasn't shaking off empire in the way that he wanted him to. Now, if we want to give Judas a little bit of credit or maybe even give him the benefit of the doubt, what the gospel writers chalk up as greed and like an over-obsession with money could have been just Judas realizing that if you actually want to lead a resistance and shake off an empire, you need some money. You can see this a little bit in the timing of how Judas betrays Jesus. In the last week of Jesus's life, he goes into the temple. Now, the temple was this sort of cultural, financial, and religious center. It had a lot of power and a lot of money. And so the safe assumption would be, if there was going to be some sort of political resistance to shake off Rome, the temple was going to be needed. They had the resources, they had the sway to get people together to resist this sort of empire. And so when Jesus goes in there, Judas is probably thinking to himself, all right, here we go. He's going to get it together. What we find is Jesus doesn't do that. He actually runs out the people who are making money and says they're exploiting the very people they're supposed to be caring for. He chastises their religious systems and undermines the entire structure. And it's after this that Judas betrays him. It's almost as if this was one final act where he cashed in his chips and said, I'm out. 
This isn't what I signed up for. Here's the interesting thing, though. Judas isn't the only one to abandon Jesus. Literally every other male follower of Jesus abandoned him. Judas was just the first. It was only the women who followed Jesus who actually had the audacity to follow him all the way to the end and stand up in the face of empire, which tells you something. But every other guy, cut and run. In fact, Judas was actually the first one to repent. In Matthew 27, he's the first one to be like, crap, I was wrong. And he goes to these sort of temple authorities and he says, help me. And these are the people who are supposed to offer him some mercy, some justice, some absolution. And they throw it back in his face and say, this is blood money. This is on you. This was your decision. He's left alone. So if we can empathize with Judas for just a second and make him more than a one-dimensional character, we can see how systems let him down. How as a victim of empire, he was hoping for some sort of system that was going to liberate him. How at the lowest point in his life, he went to the spiritual centers and asked for some sort of help. And they left him alone. They said, it's on you. And throughout history, we've continued to do the same. We've made Judas this one-dimensional villain. So where's the good news in that? Where is the better story? Well, I would say it's in this question. Why do we ignore the humanity of Judas? Why have we created him in this sort of one-dimensional image? Here's what I'd say. I think Judas embodies all of the things in us collectively and individually that are too hard to look at. And so instead of actually looking at our own shit, we externalize them and put them on Judas. In the world of psychology, this is called projecting. It's a defense mechanism. When there's something so dark, so hard to look at within us as individuals or as a society, we tend to put that on someone else, on an outside object. And we say that object, that person, that type of person is the problem because it's too hard to look inward and actually deal with the things in us that are broken. And so Judas became this projection throughout Christian history for all the things that are too hard to look at within us. And we continue to create more Judases as we go because it's easier to call someone a thug than to acknowledge that our criminal justice system may have failed us collectively. It's easier to call someone a terrorist than to acknowledge that maybe the way that in the United States we have wielded military power has left a lot of people expendable. It's easier to call someone crazy than to acknowledge that our systems for health and mental health have let people fall through the cracks. And it's easier to call someone lazy than to think about the fact that maybe our economic system has left a lot of people behind. And so instead of looking inwardly, we create Judases, we project and externalize. And the ironic thing is that creates distance. And in the end, we're more isolated than we were when we started. Now, the point of all this is not to heap a bunch of guilt and shame on us individually and collectively. The opposite, actually, I think guilt and shame is what keeps us from looking at these hard parts of our lives and our society. The point is liberation. The point is that in the central images of Christian faith, incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, we find that if we are willing to walk into the hardest parts of our lives, on the other side of that resurrection, hope, something that looks better may actually be possible. But it's not possible if we just project it, if we continue to create Judases in our world. And what happens when we refuse to externalize and project is we begin to look at ourselves and those around us with compassion. And when we look at others and ourselves with compassion, we begin to experience connection again. And as I've talked about before, that's what religion is about. Religion literally means reconnecting, re-ligamenting together, 
bringing back those things that were torn apart. It's taking the Judases of the world and instead of externalizing, bringing them back in. Not making excuses for the wrong things they did, but realizing that we are capable of those things ourselves. So Judas's story is a hard story. It's not an easy one because it makes us confront our own wounds, our own darkness. But in the end, I think it can lead us to a place where we shed shame and guilt. And in the presence of a divine love that will not cease, we have the freedom, the audacity, the courage, the compassion to re-ligament the world around us, to look within ourselves at the dark things that we refuse to look at. I think that's what Judas has to offer us. That's the story that Judas may be pulling us into. So that was a weird one, friends, but I hope you find it helpful. I hope that you can begin re-ligamenting the world around you, to cease to externalize, to cease to project, and to face with boldness and compassion the parts of you and the parts of us that are hard to look at. Till next time, peace, friends.